the meeting the person if you have residue or unresolved issues with, what you're doing there is if you don't, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die, right? That's a saying. The other one is by not saying thanks is like wrapping a present and never giving it to the person. The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Aidan McCullen a consultant, author, and podcaster that works with organizations to improve how they collaborate and create an environment for change. Now, Aidan is the host of the Global Innovation Show, which boasts Bill Gates as a listener and is without doubt one of my personal favorite shows due to his in-depth research, questions, and conversations that he has with his guests. He's developed and delivered modules on emerging technology trends at Trinity College, one of the highest-ranked business schools in the world, He's also a board advisor and non-executive director for the National Broadband in Ireland. On top of that, he's also just released a book called Undisruptible, a mindset for permanent reinvention for individuals, organizations of life. All of this after he reinvented himself after a 10-year career as a professional athlete in rugby, with over 100 caps for Leinster, Toulouse, London Irish, and a full international for Ireland. He's worked in digital transformation, innovation delivery, and now culture and leadership. Its journey, it's hard to believe, but we dive into this about where it all began for him, some of the key twists and turns he's taken, and phenomenal stories he has to share about his own reinvention along the way. I can safely say that difficult moments are always growth points. So they're inflection points where you can reframe them and this is in retrospect, in the moment, they're tough, right? In retrospect, you can frame them as milestones rather than millstones. So most of us have been trained to, if we come along resistance, we see it as a point of, let's go back to safety, instead of actually going, okay, well, maybe I've pushed the boundary far enough in order to get a growth point. So I'm on the verge of growth. I, you mentioned about the athlete, I was a terrible athlete, Barry, I don't know if I told you that, but I, I was not a born gifted athlete, that's for sure. And I can see it now in one of my sons, he's really gifted athlete. I can see it and I kind of go, where did he get that from? Right? So I'm <laughs> going, where's the milkman to my wife? Like, hey, let me see this guy. Because he definitely didn't get it from me. He's, he's fast and he's athletic, etc. And I had to work really hard to make that happen. And some of the early inflection points I think about were in the playground, always being the kid last picked being almost called names for being poor at sport, those kind of things. And the funny thing is, I look back on them and I kind of, I thought that was, that was pretty crappy. But then I go, it didn't actually stop me though. And I don't know where that came from. I kept pushing. And sometimes I think I actually, because I had the opportunity to get into professional rugby, I did it because it was to prove all those guys wrong, you know, and it was ego driven. And I think actually that's why I got injured quite a lot because I wasn't doing it with a true burning desire. Like if I look at some of the the famous players in the world and I go, I wish I could have been them. I don't because I didn't have what I saw from them where they lived for that sport. That was everything to them. It wasn't for me. It was always a 
nice to have as I was progressing towards something else that I didn't hadn't quite figured out yet. That's yeah. really fascinating though, <laughs> to hear that, you know, like, first of all, just the working your way to excellence, right? I think there's something really powerful about that, even just as a notion, right? Like a lot of people think it's innate talent or it's not. But, you know, I think hearing you talk about like getting to the, the highest performance level that your capabilities offered in something that you chose to be that professional rugby, right? It's admirable. But then you're you're sort of alluding a little bit to, to the like what's driving you, the, the purpose to go towards this. And some of it is to prove people wrong. That can be a powerful force. Absolutely. Something to prove. You know, I always look for that actually in, in a lot of startup members or people who's been never given the shot and for a circumstance or the system doesn't favor them. But tell me a little bit more about you then sort of understanding why. What's your motivator here to go do this? Tell us a little more about that. When I... And, and you know what it's like writing a book. When you go through the book, it's a transformational process for you. And that, I think that's really, really interesting that, that I never knew that, you know, and I've interviewed all these authors and I never knew that to put stuff on paper, you need to really believe it and you need to really check yourself. The other thing is to go, is that really me or is that something I heard from someone else? I was constantly doing that the whole time. And if it was a concept I was trying to make it more understandable through my words or through my experiences. That was an interesting thing for me. But through that period, coming back to what you were talking about, it was, I realized that I had something to prove, but I had picked up somewhere along the way. And you know the way you don't know somewhere where these came from. This could have been something somebody said to me. And, you, you know, it's a little bit like the Irish mammy says to you, like, if you're going to do something, do it right. And it's a version of that, actually, where it was like, well, in rugby, essentially, like I know I trained harder than anyone else. And one thing, any players who played with me would say that that guy was a, like a freak training and with his diet and everything. I used to boil mince, man. I used to boil mince and let it, let the water cool. I used to put ice in it so that the fat would, to- would go to the top and I'd scrape it off like ridiculous stuff, right? And I was doing this before the internet, before we had YouTube and stuff. So I didn't know. I was kind of guessing what I was doing. But I was really dedicated because I was like going, when I get out of this, I don't want to ever turn back and go, I should have done, I could have done. Now, by the way, I did that even still, where it was like, maybe I shouldn't have gone to that club and I should have gone to that club or maybe I should have played the game or there's a lot of politics as there is in sport. And I was terrible at that. But I learned actually later on that that's a gift in what we do, where you're kind of the dissenting voice in a positive way, you know, this kind of positive disobedience is is a good thing in the world we live in. So that was really it. But I was like, I never wanted to walk away with something and have a regret. And one of the lines I picked up, and I, I actually, I need to find the source of this is, would you rather live with the pain of discipline or the pain of regret? And that's a simple answer for me is that discipline is like this force that you can use and point it at anything to use it for positive. So you, you pointed at writing a book and I go, okay, I'll write that book. I just showed up all the time. Same as training. I showed up. And even, you know, I often laughed at when I was playing at schools level, because I was a late starter, by the way, in, in rugby as well. I only started because I had to, I, I had a fight with my parents because they wanted me to go to a school that was a rugby playing school. And, you know, they both broke their back to pay for me to go to that school. Right, right. Yeah. And I wanted to play our native sport here in Ireland, Gaelic football or hurling, which I wasn't very good at, but I worked hard at. And I always thought that there was always some value in trying the other sports to the max and then gathering the capability and then adding it to the next one. So when I got to rugby, 
I had different background and, and it's kind of like the whole idea of innovation happens at the intersections, the different yeah, varying. Always. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, crossover. So the, things, yeah. yeah. So the crossover actually was why I went and got picked. Only one of two Irish people played for Toulouse, the champions of Europe. Now, double champions. They've won the French League. Best club in Europe. And the other club I played for was Leinster, the second best club in Europe. Now, they weren't when I was there, unfortunately. <laughs> but that's a different story. Let, they let were me... on the trajectory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. was yeah. I was the tipping point for them, particularly when I left. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. So, um, like, Toulouse was an amazing, amazing thing for me because it was my vision. I went to France and I played in France when I was a kid, when I was 20. And I'd never seen this because I, I wasn't from a rugby background, so I'd never even seen them play or heard of them. And I saw this team play and I was like, oh my God, I didn't know rugby could be played like that. Yeah. And I, the seed was planted that I wanted to play for that team. And I, I wrote down a goal that if I hadn't been a regular starter in the Irish national team, by the time I was 28, I was going to go to France and I was going to play for Toulouse. And it happened, which is just amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chances of that happening. But it was because of those intersection of skills that I had that I could do things because they were, they were like a team that really put a jigsaw together and each piece had a specific job. And I matched that piece that they needed, which was why they picked me, which is just magnificent feeling when you look back on it. Now, in the time I was injured quite a lot and I was miserable because I got injured and I had to leave the club and all that kind of stuff. But when I look back on it, I kind of go, as you noted, the level of t- capability or innate talent that I had was actually very low and what I achieved would have been like an amazing player playing for the top team in the world and winning Absolutely, every yeah. you know so that's how I've made sense of that often tough time that it, it was because I was I was and actually the other thing that reveals is and I'm sure you've felt this is when you're in the midst of doing something amazing you don't stop and smell the roses and I never did man I was terrible at that yeah, well, there's some really good takeaways here as well, even just from a reflection point of view, right? Like one, like when you're in it, right? It's very hard to, yeah, as you say, like recognize some of the amazing things that are happening. I think a lot of people's natural thinking is like, I'm not doing enough or could I get better or, or all the things that are going wrong. I see that in startups or companies all the time, right? They, they often tend to take a little moment and actually sort of congratulate ourselves and say, hey, you know, six months ago, this didn't even exist today. We've like, you know, raised funding, we've got two customers and we've launched a product. It's not perfect, but wow, like let's, let's recognize that. You know, I think it's a trap that we often all fall into, especially when people have high expectations. The thing that is really, really fascinating to me, because I see this a lot in great teams and great individuals as well, though, is the discipline, right? I think the narrative so much of innovation and great leaders is, you know, somebody went out, went out for a jog, tripped on a stone and they started Google and they're just like, or we have these archetypes where we pick this one individual and we hold them up as this amazing innovator could do things that nobody else did. And they did it all on their own. And, you know, they worked, they just worked evenings and weekends and, but it's, you know, it's all rubbish, you know, like nothing happens unless you've great team around you, but this discipline to like really get the best out of of your capabilities. I think that's something really interesting to talk a little bit about because often people sometimes look at these stories that are told in the media about, you know, you have to, you're innately amazing at this or you're not, don't do it. It's like a fixed versus growth mindset sort of idea versus, you know, people like yourself where you both in athletics and, and as you said, this discipline, you've turned it towards your podcast show is phenomenal, right? I know you put in hours 
preparing for each show. You read every author's book, you do the research on them. Like you, you don't just jump on the mic and, and start asking questions, right? Um, similarly, uh, you know, when you're working with these leadership teams to advise them on how the lessons you've learned from your own journey, like I, I you're someone who instantly it struck me is like is doing the work, like and not the 30 minutes on show or the 60 minutes on stage. It's the, you know, it's the, the six hours before that or the 12 hours before that. So when you're in the sort of performance moment or when crunch time or whatever you want to call it, being on the pitch, playing the game, you know, you've done all the work to be ready to get the best out of yourself and the best out of that situation, you know, and I think sometimes like that's missing in a lot of companies, right? And, and whether it's a meeting, do you just show up to the meeting or have you done the work ahead of the meeting? So when you're in there, you're going to get the outcome that you want from the event. There's all these little tells you see in companies, like maybe there's no agenda, just be here at this time, like to do what? What are we trying to achieve here? Or, you know, how leadership teams come together and they're formulating an agenda or on the fly and no one knows what the actual two or three priorities are ahead of the session. So people arrive with like both input or questions or decisions to be made, right? This is what sort of separates, I think, the like excellence from people who are either winging it and get lucky. So tell us a little bit more, like it is obvious to me seeing this discipline that you've instilled into yourself over time, like, you know, maybe even to share some of the little disciplines you even use today when you're preparing for your shows or you're preparing to do events for leadership teams. Like what are some of the things you're thinking about to make the performance, the match, whatever it is, you know, the, the meeting, the best it can be. There's a lot in there. And I fully, fully agree with you, Barry, with regards meetings and startups, etc. And you also, as the recipient of a meeting, meeting a startup, for example, can tell when they're winging it. And you straight away start, it's almost like the percentage points start ticking downwards. You're kind of going, these right, guys. Right, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And you're like going, going, they don't even have an agenda or they didn't even send a meeting invite or, you know, even a, a skeleton of what they hope to achieve from the meeting. And that goes for internal teams as well. I think that's often overmissed when you're a startup founder, your behaviors actually teach the rest of the team how to behave. So you actually have such an important role. You're a mentor as well to the rest of them and how to behave. I think that's a really important thing that's overlooked. Another thing just on the agenda thing, because I think this is really important. And I do this with my own podcast or when I'm running MC an event or preparing for a, a workshop with clients is even for five minutes mentally rehearsing it. So rehearsing the end first about them being happy, right? And I think that sounds airy fairy to people. That sounds mumbo jumbo to a lot of people. But what they fail to realize is you're creating a mental pathway because the, the, your brain doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. So you can trick it. <laughs> and I often think about it. It's like an arrow into the future of what you want. And I often think about, you know, the, how the roads of history have been made. They started off with cow paths and cow, oxen used to pass those. And it started to create and tread the path a little bit. I think that's what happens in your brain. You create this pathway and then you fill in the gaps. It's like paint by numbers then to get to the desired outcome. So I always have that in my head. And where I first can recall that manifesting purposefully 
was when I was doing the, we have like the SAT in the States, the leaving cert here in Ireland, it's the final exams when you're 18 going into college. And during that, I got selected. And this was a tipping point for me in my sports career. I got selected because our team who had not been traditionally a very strong rugby team got to the semi-final the two years I was in the senior team. So we did really well. And so that put me somewhat on the chart. Now there was 40 players selected to go on a tour to Australia, which was an amazing big thing because the sport was just turning professional. And this was a huge opportunity. I imagine, yeah. And I remember during that, so there was this dilemma about the leaving cert, which was, you know, to try and get into college and get the points you want and then training. So I did both. And what I would do is do almost like the Pomodoro technique of 25 minutes on, five minutes off. I'd, I'd study for a determinate period of time and have it listed what I was going to do. And then I'd take time off and I'd, I'd do stuff like stretch for 10 minutes. And then I'd do more work again, come out and do like passing off my left hand, which was weak or whatever, what it was. And, and just doing this alternative. That was an early mental model that I'd formed with that, and, and I just want to emphasize as well, that was without the benefit of stuff like the internet where you could. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, yeah. Which I look at now and I go, oh man, if I had that, wow, I probably would have been totally injured because I would have overdone everything. <laughs> would have been on every diet and fad and every supplement, whatever. This is what's, again, it's fantastic to hear, right? Like these little anecdotes, I think is like it really surfaces, you know, like your natural psychology behavior, the way you approach things. Someone we had on the show recently was Javon McCormick, right? And he's like literally grew up in the worst social circumstances of all time. His, his dad was a pimp. His mom was an orphan. You know, he's one of 23 kids that were born and sort of left off into the world and, you know, barely, uh, you know, learned how to read. Now runs Scribe Media, which is this huge sort of book publishing company who've done David Goggins book, they've done, you know, all these amazing authors, right? And he, he literally, the one thing he always said about, he never felt sorry for his situation, his background, but he just had this consistency about doing things, about putting himself in these scenarios to just like keep working through and trying to improve. And these natural systems start to emerge. And like when I hear you know, your little anecdotes here of, you know, what they might have had names to you, sophisticated as the Pormadona technique, <laughs> what we might know today. But like instinctively, you have these ways of just like bettering yourself, right? Systems that, and we always hear this with, you know, it's like habits, you know, you fall to the level of your habits that you have in place. Often, you know, motivation will get you so far. But if you have these habits in place where you can sort of constantly be just like tipping away and you like practicing, intellectually exercising, physically, then flipping to physically, whatever that is, practicing new skills or it's fascinating to hear this, right? And so how's that then propagated on to many people, me included, you've had this phenomenal professional athlete career and, you know, you represented your country and it's like fantastic, right? For and, you know, of course, your mentality shows again. You're like, well, I could have done better if, you know, that's great. <laughs> so and now you're, you know, as you said, you've moved into this world where you've, you know, different type of sort of exercises in a way, right? Both advising leadership teams and startups and authoring. And this is something we both probably share. It's like, and I wrote down creation, the creation of oh, yeah. something, right? So and yeah. yeah, so tell us a little bit about your sort of creation process as you were 
let's take the book as an example, because it, it is making something from nothing. You know the least about it when you start, in a way. You learn about it as you go through the process, both creating it, you know, formulating your own thoughts to say, actually, what do I really believe here? And you get feedback if you're lucky through the creation process. So what are some of your takeaways or thoughts as, as you've sort of gone on that process and maybe some of those systems again that you, you, you sort of started to institute as you sort of went about it? It's funny because I talk about when you have a vision, the challenges and obstacles you encounter inevitably when you have that. And I truly believe that it's like, I want to do this thing. And then everything to the opposite of why you shouldn't do it starts to arise in your mind and then actually manifests as well in, in life. And, I, and Barry, by the way, I want to thank you as well, because you, you pre-read the book and you gave me amazing feedback. It was considered and it wasn't just, yeah, that's great. Here's my endorsement, a generic endorsement. You did a great job and you really, you twisted me and pulled me. And, oh, it's a pleasure. Way. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. great. And so I mentioned that because you, you read one of the chapters, it was called Managing Contrasts. And I'll tell our audience quickly the story behind it. So one day I came home, my kid had had a bad day. One of my kids had had a bad day. And it was in the age when they were young enough to give them baths. So they're now 11 and 8. And so four or five years ago, whatever. And I called them in for the bath. And, you know, picture me coming home from work, shirt sleeve pulled up in the water to make sure it's not too hot. And I start swooshing the water and I notice the wave starts going left and right. And I was like, hmm, here comes an analogy. <laughs> call, in, call in the two boys who were sick of my analogies. They were my sandbox for, for the book. Call them in. Hey, boys, look at this body of water. And they're looking at the water and they're going, oh, no, I can see their eyes going. Here he goes. And I was like, see the way the wave is up on one side and there's a trough the other side. So there's a crest and a trough. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, that's like life, boys. <laughs> and uh, I could see and, and I was like, going, oh, I've totally lost them here. And look to my older son and kind of going, do you understand? There's always a high and a low at the same time. They're, they're always coming in succession. And I said, the trick is to enjoy the highs. Now, I don't always eat my own cooking. I just told you that. Enjoy the highs. But I know there's a low coming, so prepare for it. And when you're in the low, understand that you, there's a high coming again. You'll get through this. And said it to two of them, the younger guy's staring at the water. I was like, oh, he's really got it. He's, he's <laughs> totally into this. And he's like, dad. And I'm like, yeah, what's he going to say? Waiting for this insightful moment. He's like, will you put me in there and do that? <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. So I, I left it. A couple of weeks later, the older guy, he fell from the trampoline, broke his arm. And I came home from work. My wife tells me he's upstairs. He's fine. He's got a cast on it, whatever. Go up to him and I said, son, are you all right? Everything okay? And he's like going, yeah, dad, it's, it's fine. And he didn't, you know, the way when you're talking to a kid, when they're watching TV, they don't look up at you. So yeah, never. Yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. in the zone, in his, in his alpha waves, brainwave state, like barely knows I'm there. And he's like, like staring at the TV and I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I just managed a trough. <laughs> and I was like, going, he got it. He got it. <laughs> and I was like, wave time for me, surfing the crest of the wave in my mind. So I, I say that because that manifested man for me when I was writing the book, right? And yeah, uh, it was yeah. hilarious. The chapter in which I was right, when I was writing that chapter, I hadn't backed up my, my computer for a while. I hadn't, you know, the way you extract and you throw them off to the cloud yeah. and you save them everywhere. So that I hadn't saved in about like five days and I'd written furiously 
and the computer stops. Oh. I was like, oh no, couldn't get it to start again. I was just after actually recording a show and I was like, I totally must have overloaded it. So I was like, okay, I'm writing this chapter on managing contrasts of the wave up and then I got to eat my own cooking here. So I didn't panic. And I was like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And I told a few people, they're like, oh my God, oh my God. And I was like, nah, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And bring it to a, an expert. He's like, I can't recover the laptop. And oh, wow. he's like, I'll see if I can get the hard drive. And I was like, that'd be fine. It'd be fine. So luckily he eventually gets it out and I get through it. So that was one, one <laughs> of the kind of like millstones. But I was like, oh, that's a milestone. It's a milestone. The other was that at the time I was working in a, in a different organization and one of the leader of that organization tried to, he didn't like me writing the book because he's like, you're using all your cognitive energy for that and you should be using it for the business. I was like, oh, this is like me having a hobby like jujitsu or something like this is my thing I do in my time. Yeah. So I, I had that tension also there and I was like, oh, there's another one. And, I, and you know, I used to think nasty thoughts about people like that. And I was like, um, you know what, everything you do, every vision you pursue, somebody will play that role. And if you can have empathy and see that kind of going, I would hate to be that role. I remember another thing I said to my kid was like, for every Batman, there's a Joker, there has to be an anti-hero. And the anti-hero gives you a contrast. And that's why I call it managing contrast. You need to have a background to see the foreground, vice versa. So I often empathize and go, well, thank God I'm not playing that role because that role would be a horrible role to be playing in life. And I, I said this to my kid once when he experienced the bullies, like, imagine this is your movie of your life and that poor kid has to play the bully. Would you like to play the bully? Oh, no. And I was like, yeah. Do you feel sorry for him? Yeah. I, my role is way better. Yeah. <laughs> and I think those little mental models where you can quickly pull them out and see them manifest are so, so important, Barry. And so that's why I say that the transformational journey of writing the book, I experienced some of those very concepts during writing it that manifested. And I was able to go, there it is. And I, just for some of the startup of your audience, mm. this is when you come up with the idea and you say to your family or your, maybe it's your partner or yeah. your family members and they go, oh, I don't know, I don't know about this. Oh, I remember and you're kind of going, looking at them going, you are the very person would have thought would have been supporting me amazingly. But when you preempt it and start to see them as the, the joker or the anti-hero and go, yeah. somebody has to give me that role for me to actually push through the boundary. It's really, really helpful because you then, you don't waste valuable cognitive or life force energy thinking about ill about that person. You just get on with it. I think that's a really, really useful thing that helps me in those moments. Yeah, no, that resonates massively with me, actually, because you see that a lot, right? Like the thing I'm really taking away from listening to you, though, is just like, that's a little system you've built for yourself to say, actually, I need to have people push back on things for me. And rather than sort of get angry at the individual or blame them or get, you know, pour energy into that, just recognize it's part of the process. So what can I take from it and move on, right? Like, it's really, really interesting, actually, because, you know, so many time energy can be just burnt getting angry at, at that character or getting angry at yourself or... So it's really fascinating to hear you say, like, that's sort of an expectation you almost have as part of the process. And in some ways that you can start, like, asking yourself, well, am I not getting enough contrast in what I'm doing? 
just to sanity check what I'm doing or to challenge me or it's very easy to like keep looking for feedback that makes you feel happy in the world and makes you feel good about yourself. And but then you don't actually feel any of the challenge to sort of things that you have to get better at or. But I do like the aspect, though, of you like how you focus your energy. You don't get angry at the individuals. You just sort of see them as like they're part of the story. That's what's needed. And moving on, because that's really hard. Loads of people I either have to work with on a regular basis, like some of them do my head in all the time. (laughs) Right. And um, and it's very easy, though, you know, to sort of then get frustrated with them as people, right? Because they're not, they're slowing me down. They're, they're not aligned. They're doing things that I don't want them to do or all of these little shades that show up inside, uh, whether you're working in teams or in companies or just doing whatever you want to do. I think it's, uh, it's really interesting just to be able to elevate yourself to that thinking that you're describing and just see it as part of it. And they, so then your energy is actually focused very productively to sort of then just keep moving. That just really resonates with me at the moment as well. Like, especially with Nobody Studios, you know, every idea I tell people, most of them say they're rubbish. It's never going to work. You know, like that. That's and you do get angry at people because you're like, well, why? Can't, why aren't you getting excited about this? Like, yeah, I'm excited my about baby. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and like that's it. You know, or you know, teams that sort of look. You're trying to say, and I need you to do this role in the team and bring it to life, and they sort of look at something and go, no, no that's not what I like to do. So. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the thing that I want to do, that I enjoy doing, rather than what needs to be done. And then then you get frustrated with folks like that, you know? So it's really interesting, though, just to, to hear you place it like that. And by the way, man, I was holding my hand up kind of going, look, I, I am no saint here. Like I did it. The reason, talking about managing contrast, the reason I've got there is because I did it wrong and I wasted so much life force for such a long time. Yeah. My rugby career, and I, I talk about this in the book, you know, I talk about the coconut trap at the end of the book and I'll tell our audience quickly, there's this great story about how natives used to trap monkeys in an age where they could and they'd sell them to zoos or to, as pets to orphan soldiers, for example. And they'd use this technique where they'd get a, monk, a coconut and they'd hollow out a little hole just wide enough for a monkey's hand to squeeze through and they'd fill it with fruit and they'd hang that coconut on a tree that monkeys would frequent. In time, along would come the monkeys, they'd smell the fruit, they'd come along and they'd see the, the coconut, squeeze their hand in to grab the fruit, and in doing so, create a fist. And then they could no longer get their hand out because the fist was bigger than the squeezed hand. Even though they saw potential captors coming to take them away, which could have spelt certain death or at least imprisonment, not a happy ending, they would not let go of the fruit. So I use that to say, that's what happens as we know with a lot of organizations, the more legacy corporate organizations, they won't let go of the way they used to do things. They won't unlearn to your very work essence. They won't let go of business models that may no longer serve them. We've seen this with Nokia, for example, they couldn't let go of the business model. We see this with individuals that they won't let go of the mental model that they hold on to so dearly because it's their identity. And I saw this in sport where so many of my colleagues clung to the jersey and and one of the final paragraphs i call it you're not your jersey you can't over identify with that jersey you gotta take it off and hand it to the next person you're the custodian of that jersey for a little while enjoy it but you're not going to keep it and i say that because back to what we were talking about i clung to feelings of resentment and particularly towards one coach because he prevented me certainly from getting more time playing for my country And I blamed him for such a long time. And that's why I needed to form a mental model around those jokers that we have in life. 
But when I saw things from his, her, his perspective, I was like going, this guy has a miserable life. <laughs> I would hate to be that guy. You know, wow. Like, and, and I was like kind of going, I can't believe I wasted, and I mean like a decade dwelling. Yeah, no, I could imagine. Yeah. On and off, like, you know, at, at moments when you'd see a, t- a match playing or something, and it would trigger your memory, your amygdala's firing, and you're like, oh no, yeah. Yeah, you're thinking of that. And that's why I say you need to let go of the coconut. And there's a great, great saying, another little mental model that I, that I live by, which is if you get bitten by a snake, it's not the snake bite that kills you. It's not removing the poison. So yeah. To remove the poison. And I, I certainly, I absolutely am 100% certain that when I removed that poison, I actually created space for the cognitive energy where the book came from. So it came from this area of, well, I, had, I hadn't been, wait- if you think of how limited cognitive capacity we have, I wasn't wasting it on crap that no longer served yeah. me. Coconuts. Yeah. So I, I freed up that space and use it in a positive sense. And it's just a better way to live. You know, it's fantastic, right? Because like you say, all all of these challenges we face in work, life, business, you name it. You know, like when I left London and moved to San Francisco, I moved here to start a company with, a, you know, someone who I wrote a, my first book with, you know, and really good friends had uh, the, writing the book together was a great experience with our other co-author. And, you know, we wanted to start a company together six weeks after you know, moving out of London, burning the boats, arriving in San Francisco. And we both knew that the, the company we were trying to create were different companies. We were not aligned on what we wanted to do. And it was the most painful moment, right? Because you were realizing, you know, I was, I, you know, whatever analogy you want to pick, I was trying to build a car, he was trying to build a plane <laughs> and, and whatever you want to say it was, but the, it wasn't the same thing, you know, and it was really, really difficult to sort of let go of that, you know, because you have such high aspirations, hopes, you've been excited, you thought you had a shared vision, but once you start doing the reps or getting into it, you realize you don't. And my word, you know, like that was one of the most difficult experiences I've, I've been through because I'd given up, I felt like I'd given up everything to go pursue this dream and it was turning out to, to be not, not a nightmare, but not what I'd hoped it to be. And, you know, like it's funny then when you think about that energy then to hold it, like do we hold on to the, like get angry at the other person because it's not what you wanted it to be or it was their fault or you were, I was clear what I wanted to do. How, how could they not have heard that? And but again, a lot of this creation process, whether it's writing, whether it's a company, whether it's a product, you know, you learn it by doing it. Like you, as you start to take the steps, that's where the information comes to say, is this working? Is it not? Is it what I think it is, what it's not? And, and then getting to a point where you realize that it's, it's actually the right thing to do is to stop, to like move on with your life in different directions. Like it's painful. There is no two ways about it. It is tough. But it's funny then you mentioned like, again, a lot of this, uh, like, how do you use that energy then? Because it's very easy to pour it into bitterness and anger and frustration and, or you can pour it into something that helps you learn forward or take steps forward, right? Creating a book, actually, I'm positive writing on learn was driven from that sort of those learnings too, as well. There's no two ways about it. It's difficult, but it's great to hear these like little systems that you're sharing to help. Because even for me, I am not as intentional to recognize that sometimes because in the moment it's hard. So yeah, no, really, really fascinating to hear. And no, thank you for sharing them. They're, they're really, yeah. can I, really can I share helpful. one, one final one? Cause th- this one's, uh, yeah, please, this, yeah. this one I found so valuable and it's based on what we just said there is, you know, those people in life that we have those moments with, so you can, you know who they are straight away. You know, it's the person who you see on 
coming down the road and you might consider crossing the road. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. So we, all, yeah. we all have them, right? Yeah. yeah. And when I formed that mental model about the energy being wasted and that feeling of what a waste of life force, I call it that, by even being like that. And oftentimes they did something or we perceived they did something in a time where we were more mentally immature. So our context was all wrong. I'll give you an example. When I went on to be a coach at the end of my rugby career, I coached for a very short time. It wasn't really for me. I did it to test it out. One of my reinventions, Barry. And yeah, I, I, did it, I did it while I was working, actually, while I was an intern after professional sport. But I understood the role of a coach totally different because of the experience of being a coach. So I saw it from their shoes, what it's like and how little things are a big thing. And as you're a player, you don't see those things. You're oblivious. So one of the things that I started doing was asking people who I had in Ireland, we call it niggle. <laughs> so I had a little bit of residue of a bad relationship or something I perceived wrong in the time. And I invited them for breakfast. So I'd buy them, come along, buy them breakfast. Out of the blue, they'd be like, kind of going, geez, I haven't heard from this guy in ages. Oftentimes, they were oblivious to any residue between you. And what, what I was doing was, I'd bring them for lunch. And they'd all, you know the way when somebody reaches out after the time, there's also a suspicion of, what does this guy want? Or what does yeah, this of course. guy want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I parked that straight away. The start of the meal said, listen, I just thought I hadn't seen you in ages. I felt we didn't part on the best of company. And... I just wanted to meet you and wish you well and buy your breakfast and see how you are. And the look on their face is usually one of total shock. They're kind of going, I didn't think that at all. And kind of go, well, maybe it's the way I saw things. And, I, and I'm delighted you don't feel that way. But if there was anything between us, I'd love to just get it out because life's too short, right? And they're always like, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> but it's just such a great thing to do. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is those people in our lives who said something that was a whisper in the, at the right time or a feedback like you gave to me. I was waiting for this moment, actually. Thank you. I, I know I thanked you by email and stuff, but to thank you publicly for the, the impact of your feedback from my book, because it was, wasn't all rosy, but that's the stuff. That's the gold, though. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, you right sparing on. my feelings is no use to me. And sport really gives you that. So thanking those people as well is so important because you never know what somebody else is going through. And just by saying, thank, listen, thanks. You said something to me when I was 10 and yeah. it stuck with me all that time. And I know you haven't heard from me since then, but it really has stuck with me and it just emerged for me recently. And I wanted to say, thanks. And they'd be going, going, wow, you know, no, it could be a, a coach when you're a school or a teacher and no kid has ever done that to me before that. It could perk them up and give them new yeah. energy and new life force so you can have an impact on their lives. I think those two little practices are just something that if we all did, we'll all make the world a better place. Like a thousand percent on this one, you know, and it's so funny as well, like so much of when, especially trying to build startups or any, any creation is like, if you can get to that level of conversation with folks that you're either working with or collaborating with, or that's what makes the magic happens, right? I feel like some of this is like truth seeking, you know, like it's the something you said had an impact on me. Here's why. Something you said had a negative impact. Is this what, did you know that? Or they're such powerful conversations to have with folks, even for yourself as an individual, you know, like straight away now you've made me want to write down, I'm going to write down three people's names, <laughs> literally who I'm like time, one that's sort of uh, 
something that threw me off. One that one who really helped me, and then one that I just I you know there's a niggle as you say or something in the back of my mind that's unresolved, and I'm going to go and try and solve that because again they're just like it's a good if you get into that habit of like just stepping into those things you're just going to learn amazing things. Like someone who I think is angry at me, I tell them and they're, you know, 99% of the time, the other person's oblivious to it. As you said, it's, it's often in your own head. It's a great one. But also just thanking people for when they did help you, I think is a habit that we could all do with. And I always think that hard one of where there's something that's in the back of my mind and how do I speak up about it with people? Yeah. It's just, I think that's another great one because you, you're constantly resolving things with people then if you can if you can step into those sort of uncomfortable situations right and we're building a startup here at the moment right there's there's a lot happening our ability to have those sort of candid conversations with each other is it's really going to be dictate how successful we are right and like you have to practice that you have to build that rapport with people every day almost so so lots of great tidbits there thank you very much two one-liners for you so so the the meeting the person if you have residue or unresolved issues with, what you're doing there is, if you don't, it's like drinking poison, waiting for the other person to die, right? That's a saying. The other one is, by not saying thanks, is like wrapping a present and never giving it to the person. So they're good mental models to do it. And, you know, back to the podcast is unlearned podcast, your book is unlearned. We learned not to do this as kids, to shut up and be quiet in the corner. Teachers told us all our lives. And I think we need, it's one thing we need to unlearn from a societal perspective. And if we do, as you said, you'll have much more productive conversations. You'll avoid a lot of stuff. I always think of if you can avoid the residue ever happening, that's a great result because then you never even have to experience it and go through that stress in the first place. I tell my kids that it's like a computer game. So if you can avoid having to fight that, the what do they call the boss at the end of the level? The big boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Avoid it. Isn't that great? And I said, so, you know, if you can avoid causing stress from your mommy and me, that's great because then we don't have to go through stress. We don't have to give out to you and you actually have a better day. And they're like, oh, oh that makes sense. So speaking in their language <laughs> makes a big difference. I love it. So like these are fantastic anecdotes and like stories from your own personal journey. I really thank you for sort of just sharing them so openly. So looking ahead then, like what are some of the things that you're most excited about now? You you know, the the book is now out there, Indisruptible is fantastic. I highly recommend everybody check it out. What are you learning now on this next, whatever your next sort of pivot, incarnation, whatever you want to call (laughs) yourself? Who are you going to be next? (laughs) Exactly, Um, yeah. So I am taking a course, I'm nearly finished a course in executive coaching. I've been an executive coach anyway, but it was like I learned to play the guitar by ear. I just wanted to add some discipline to that, some, you know, some methodology, which I kind of knew, but I just need the piece of paper really. I maybe don't need it, but it's nice to know you're not missing anything. So that's one thing. I'm also, my course, the permanent reinvention course, which is based on the book, is going amazingly well, man. It's so so great and the feedback so rewarding actually it's so rewarding that because you can see you can make such an impact in teams and how they communicate and how they collaborate and all those kind of things and how they call out stuff when it's wrong as well so that's amazing that's just been a a joy to do and one of the kind of offshoots of that was i've had this burgeoning and this goes back to learning idea for years where i was 
talking about this. We have in Ireland this thing, Coder Dojo, which is like teaching kids to code. This thing is called Leader Dojo. So it's like going, well, coding is great, but coding will be done by AI, you know, and the skill will be asking what the AI does for you. And I thought, well, leadership and human skills are more important for kids to be able to navigate the world in flux when it's going through much change, including the agility of thinking, the ability to unlearn and relearn on and off ramps in education, all that stuff. And out of that, I worked with a college here in Ireland, Alexandra College in Milltown, and worked with the, the senior team there. They asked me, what would I do if I was them? And I said, I've had this idea because my business is called Edge Behavior. So the behaviors at the edge of society become the norm in the future. And I said, this idea of, in Ireland, we used to have these things called hedge schools, where it was illegal for us to educate ourselves. People used to educate themselves wherever they could under bushes and, you know, back alleys and stuff. And I used to call innovation labs hedge schools because oftentimes you were doing stuff that you shouldn't really been doing. Yeah, but, yeah. You know. right. So anyway, I came up with this concept called Edge School. And Edge School is edge behaviors being taught as part of the fourth year. So in, in Ireland, we have a fourth year, which is kind of a, a transition year. So it's not measured, essentially. So it's like a sandbox year. And one of the things I thought was kids don't get a chance to learn by doing, like you said, from a startup. You learn by doing, not by concepts. So if you can add the concepts and the scar tissue of experience, wouldn't that be great? So this is what Ed School is. It's, it's an opportunity for these. And they're all girls, by the way, which is really important to add diversity to the mix because they don't often know what, what does a job in cybersecurity entail? Because cybersecurity is going to be huge, right? In a world Absolutely. of IoT and 5G yeah. and interconnectivity. So now they can have actually dip their toe in the water and experience those different things. So that's really exciting and, you know, not a profit-driven idea at all. It's something just to, some legacy, if I can get it up and hand it over to the school and then maybe they'll create a, a template for other schools. Fantastic. So yeah, loads of stuff. And then there's other books, Barry, you know what it's like. As soon as, <laughs> as, soon as I, I pressed, I wrote the end, I was like on. Now on to the next one. That one no, yeah. Totally ignoring my, my advice about smelling the roses, like next, <laughs> you know. So yeah, loads of stuff, man. And the podcast's going great. And look forward to having you on again. Yeah, no, it's it's like honestly, it's it's really inspiring. It's one of the reasons why we love having people like yourself on the show. Like such an interesting, you know, navigation of life in so many different domains and experiences and you know, and it's great to see that you're always turning it into something to share back with people. I think that's a really powerful step. So, look, uh, we'll definitely have you back on the show again with the next book. Who knows what it'll be? <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be fantastic like this one has. Um, Aidan, thanks very much for all your time and all your stories and really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for having me, Barry. <laughs>